Tonight we're in Exodus 27. We're moving verse by verse through the book of Exodus. So the second book of your Old Testament is what you want. And we're going to be looking at one piece of furnishing within the tabernacle tonight, and that is the altar of burnt offering or something called the bronze altar. And so that's where we are tonight, Exodus chapter 27. We'll be doing uh, 19 verses in the chapter. And before we jump into it, would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for tonight. Thank you for the youth upstairs enjoying a little bit of a party and celebration. Thank you for all of the different servants in different areas. Thank you for Shane leading us in music. And thank you for the word of God. Your word is alive and it is powerful and it can and does transform us. And our prayer is simply that, that we would be changed more into the image of Christ because we've been here, we've received it, we're ready to act upon it as you would will. May you be glorified in the teaching and the hearing and responding to your word. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. The altar of burnt offering. So what we've been doing is we've been exploring uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, the book of Exodus. And we have seen the children of Israel move out of slavery, out of Egypt, and move and begin to move towards the promised land and go to Mount Sinai. God has given the law from Mount Sinai as it's thundered. And Moses has now gone up and he has received not only the 10 words or 10 laws, not only the covenant code, the more specific everyday laws, but now he's getting blueprints for a structure known as the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a tent-like structure which preceded the actual physical temple. So those of you who have been around the, the Bible or the things of God, you know eventually Solomon built a temple, a physical uh, stone structure that was really an incredible building. And that particular temple got destroyed. And then there was an attempt to rebuild it. And then that temple got destroyed again. Eventually it was called Herod's Temple and it fell in 70 AD, and it has never risen again. The tabernacle was the first structure of the three, you could say, of the two additional temples that God gave a blueprint for up on Mount Sinai. At this point, what Moses is getting is only the instructions. It has not been built yet. He has simply been, been given the blueprint of what is the, the tabernacle is supposed to be and what goes in it. And if you were with us, you know we started from the inside out. You could say we started from God and went out to man. And the first thing that we looked at was the Ark of the Covenant, the one thing that was behind the veil in the holiest place, or what we know as the Holy of Holies. That's where the lid of the Ark was the mercy seat, where the two angels' wings touched, and God said, there I will meet with you. As we move beyond the curtain and we go out into the holy place, we ran into two additional items so far. We've got the table of showbread and the menorah that we've been introduced to. And we've studied those two things and how they point us to Jesus, the bread of God, the light of the world. We have not met the altar of incense yet. The altar of incense was just outside of the veil. That will come a little bit later. And there, I think there are reasons for this specific order. And as you move out now into the courtyard, uh, the, one, the place that a layperson, a non-priest could go, as far as they could go, 
the first thing they would run into if we flip it around now, we look at the tabernacle coming from the outside in or for man entering in. He would enter through a gate. Let's go to the, the first slide we have there. And uh, he would enter into this gate here, the outside gate. And you can see that the children of Israel were camped all around the tabernacle. So the tabernacle was the center of Jewish life at this time. And if you go to the very next slide, here's how the actual um, tribes were configured around the tabernacle. And I don't think it's hard for any of you to see the shape that takes place as you begin to study the numbers and the layout of the tribes around the tabernacle. It forms something very clear that we can see. It forms a cross. And the tabernacle and really the whole of Israel, when you think about the main purpose that God had for the children of Israel was to entrust them with the oracles of God and through them to bring forth the Messiah. And so the tabernacle is pointing us ultimately to the one who would come and tabernacle among us, John 1 14, and that is Jesus himself. And so the, the people would uh, see the tabernacle as the geographical heart for the nation of Israel. They camped around it, and uh, we see the actual tabernacle structure in the midst of God's people. They entered through a single gate. I think the next picture will give us a little bit more on that. So you can see the entrance, entrance gate had similar colors on the curtains, if you will, when you came from the outside in. So if you were camping anywhere around and you wanted to go in as a layperson, non-priest, into the tabernacle, you went through a single gate. You'll notice in this depiction, the gate was very wide. Now, they, the question, you know, scholars are always looking for symbolic meanings in the tabernacle, and I think we should be. You can see that the colors of that entrance gate match the two inner curtains as well. They don't have the cherubim on them, but the outside curtain had the same color scheme. And you came in through a wide entrance gate. Some have said that's because God's grace is so wide and his mercies are so broad for us. And I like to think that that's true. Other scholars have said the gate was as wide as it was because it had practical reasons to be wide. You had to bring a lot of animals, a lot of people. Remember, this is a geographical center for probably well over a million people. And there is one bronze altar, one altar of sacrifice for all the nation. And we're going to discover tonight that this thing, this altar of sacrifice was continually burning. Uh, constantly had sacrifices going on, whether they were actual animal sacrifices or meal offerings. Those are laid out in the first several chapters of Leviticus. But when you walked into this particular area through the gate, uh, you, would, you will notice that there is one way that you can go in. And we've all learned, I think, if you've been around for just a little bit in the church, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one's coming to the Father except through me. If you look at the tabernacle, you'll notice there's one entry point, no back door, no ladders, no other entry points. You come one way, or you don't come at all. And when you come through the single way, which points to Jesus, the first thing that you are confronted with is a place of sacrifice. Why is that? Because without the shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness of sin. 
You cannot approach God without a sacrifice. And so if you were a Jewish person back in this time, back in the time of Moses, and you did something wrong, you sinned against God, you sinned against somebody else, you came into this place of worship, the farthest you could go was the outer court. You could never go into that inner place. And there you brought your sacrifice. And that sacrifice was to cover your sin until you blew it the next time. <laughs> and all God's people said, ouch. Right? A lot of animals being sacrificed at this place. In fact, if you look at it from God's perspective, how many sacrifices do you think went up to God during this time when the tabernacle and then temple existed? It's probably a number that would blow our minds, but sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice for all of these people, perhaps a million or more people all coming constantly with someone sinning and giving an animal. Somebody else sins and they offer an animal. And this is what this was all about. And so in Exodus 27, verse 1, God says to Moses, you shall make the altar, that's the altar of bronze or the altar of burnt offering, of, of acacia wood. We've seen that wood before. And just to save you figuring out the cubits, the New Living has it as seven and a half feet wide, this particular altar, seven and a half feet long, and four and a half feet high. So there you have the dimensions of the tabernacle, or excuse me, of the actual altar. Now, if we can go to the next pick for a second, I think we'll get you a picture of an altar here. And this would be kind of a typical altar that you might discover if you were an archaeologist in the Middle East. And you'll notice that this particular stone structure has four corners or four horns, and we are not positive what the horns were used for, but one thing that we can surmise and we can look at some other scripture is perhaps they would tie the animal to the horns of the altar. I'll talk to you more about that in a second. Let's go to the very next picture. And this, this is a depiction of what Moses was told to build. You can see that it was carried with poles. It was made of framed wood hollow on the inside, so it wasn't that heavy. It had a grating, literally, for barbecue. And uh, this, this was basically what it looked like. This was the bronze altar. The poles would only be placed inside of it when it was relocated or moved. And so the priests would work around the altar to deal with ashes and coals and burnt offerings and that kind of thing. And this is the particular structure that is uh, Moses is given. And I don't think it's hard for us to understand why the first thing that you run into when you come through that door is a structure like this, one for sacrifice, because we all have a problem. And the problem that separates from us from our God is a little word, S-I-N. It's sin. And it's not the most popular topic in all the world, amen? People don't necessarily rejoice in talking about their sin. But nonetheless, this is what keeps us away from God. So let's hold our place in Exodus and turn over to Isaiah just for a moment. Uh, Isaiah chapter 59. We are looking at our culture right now. We know there's a lot of things that are haywire, a lot of inexplicable things. 
Uh, the same kinds of things happened in Israel. And God addressed these things in Isaiah 59. And he said these words, verse 1, to his people. This is sometime later. R way after they had committed idolatry many, many times. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, 59.1 of Isaiah, nor is his ear so dull that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Here's the list of the problems. See if this sounds familiar. Your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one sues righteously. No one pleads honestly. They trust in confusion and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies. And from that which is crushed, a snake breaks forth. Their webs will not become clothing, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are the works of iniquity and an act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. They don't know the way of peace. There is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold, darkness brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. All of us growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. Our transgressions are multiplied before you, God, and our sins testify against us. Our transgression, transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. Truth has stumbled in the street, and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking and he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with a zeal, with zeal as a mantle. You know, uh, I heard John MacArthur talking about our country in the wake of the Uvalde, Texas shooting. And he went to Isaiah 59, and he said, basically, in his opinion, our nation is under the judgment of God. And he said, not those children. Those children were innocent. And he said, I believe those children are in heaven. But... We have to look at our nation and look at Isaiah 59 and wonder if we have just read about our nation. We wonder what happened to truth, what happened to justice, what happened to innocence. It seems like when someone turns away from evil, they're the ones that become the victim. 
And this is the diagnosis. It's the same old problem that's existed way back when. The same old obstruction, the same thing that keeps us from our God. What is it? It's the SIN virus. Sin. 100% deadly, 100% of the time. And here's the thing. It's a universal problem, too, back in Exodus 27, because all of us have sinned, and all of us fall short of the glory of God. The position of this particular piece of furniture is revealing. It shows us that there's a big obstacle between us and this holy God. Amen? In fact, if you go, uh, I think it's about number six or seven slide. You can see, uh, go back one. You can see that if you entered into this place, and you can see how the altar burnt offering is lit, no one could get to the presence of God. Uh, only the high priest one time a year could go into the holiest place. So if you were a lay person, if you were just kind of an average family person, whatever, the farthest you could go is that courtyard. And the first thing that you run into is a place of sacrifice, as if to say, without sacrifice, I can't approach God. Now, you might be asking why. Here's the answer. Because God is holy. Amen? Now, I, I heard this illustration the other night. I think this will bring it home. Let's say that you were in your home and a home invasion happened. And let's say that you have a family, several members in the family, and the robbers chained you to the bed and then right in front of you abused the rest of your family, burned them, hurt them, abused them. And imagine that you were there and you were shackled and you couldn't do anything. You couldn't protect them. That would be a terrible feeling. Well, let's say that in the aftermath of everything that happened, there was a court hearing and the perpetrator stood before the judge and the judge said, well, you guys feel bad about what you did? Oh, yeah, we feel bad, judge. Okay, well, I, I think they've learned their lesson. We'll just, we'll just let them go. Now, would you think that that was justice if you were the one who was shackled and your family was abused in front of you? The answer is no. You would want justice. Now, of course, we all want mercy, but you get the idea. God is ultimately pure and ultimately just. Now, the altar of burnt offering is pointing us towards the solution to our sin. So don't, don't lose your way here. We do have the answer in this piece of furniture, and that's our hope. But you get the idea that in order for anyone to get to that holiest of holies place and actually commune with God, there are some very significant barriers. And the significant barrier is really us. If you, O Lord, kept a record of my sin, Lord, I could never stand. But with you, there is forgiveness. And so the worshiper comes, you know, through the gate, through the one way and of course, the desire is to tabernacle with God, to know God. Paul said, I want to know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. But then there's a barrier. There's only so far you can come because we've all sinned and we've all fallen short. 
Now back to the piece of furniture, a little bit more of the description of it. In Exodus 27, 2, you shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horn shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. One thing that we've noticed in the tabernacle is when you move from the outside, things are overlaid with bronze. When you get to the inside where God is, then it becomes gold. Why? Well, it speaks of God's royalty. It speaks of his deity. It speaks of his glory. You think of gold and you can think of, you know, glory and light and things like that. Bronze is a less expensive metal. And so in the outer court, things are overlaid with bronze. And that can point to our weakness. Bronze is also uh, a picture of judgment. Uh, Remember in the wilderness, Moses made a bronze serpent. And when people were getting bit by the fiery serpents because of their disobedience, they were told to just look at the bronze serpent and they would live. And Jesus said in John 3, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And he meant on the cross there. So that anyone who looks to Jesus won't die of the snake bite, if you will. This is the picture. So the bronze can speak of judgment. The four corners could speak of the four compass points of the earth. Salvation is universal. God loves the whole world. But in in the Bible, the most uh, familiar way to look at the horn is that it's a symbol of power. Uh, Horns are a symbol of power on animals that have horns, like a ram, and they can, you know, knock into things and stuff like that. It's, it's a symbol of power and strength. And so this is the idea of power. And what, is, what does that mean as it relates to this altar? What power does it point to? Does it point to the power of sin? To the power of God to overcome our sin? Probably the latter. But this is how this was constructed. And if you go to that very last picture, you can see that when someone uh, walked up to this place, this is kind of what you would see. This, uh, an animal would have been placed on this, and it was a place of blood, fire, smoke, death. It wasn't a pretty place. And it was burning continuously. You could never get this image out of your mind if you were an Israelite because this was the reality of what had to be done to deal with sin. And these priests were working. Sacrifice after sacrifice. And this is the implement or the piece of furniture that is constructed. Moses is told to build the altar. An altar is something that we see all throughout our Bibles as well. It's a place of worship, but it is literally a place of sacrifice. Some other details about the altar. 27.3 Exodus, you shall make its pails uh, to receive ashes from the surface temporarily uh, before dumping for removing of its ashes. Its shovels to remove ashes and uh, reconfigure the coals like on a barbecue. Its basins, that would be for the holding of blood and perhaps liquids for other purposes, water, oil. It's forks, basically, to turn over the meat on the barbecue and deal with the meat. 
and its fire pans. That was for the holding of live coals uh, that cooked the meat. You should make all its utensils of bronze. So everything is made of bronze. You shall make for it a grating of network of bronze. And on the net, you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. The grating is simply the grilling surface. And you shall put it beneath under the ledge of the altar that the net may reach halfway up the altar. Underneath was a net or strainer or grill work that hung below the surface of the grating, halfway from the surface to the ground. Perhaps to hold the burning wood is a great possibility. And then the description on how to carry it. You shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, overlay them with bronze. Its poles shall be inserted into the rings so that the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. And so poles were only put there when it was moved so that they would have freedom of movement around this altar. You shall make it hollow, notice verse 8, with planks as it was shown to you or the blueprint that you received in the mountain. So they shall make it. Moses receives the divine blueprint. Others will construct it. And that, those first eight verses are the description of the uh, bronze altar or the altar for the burnt offering. Now, that is the only focus for tonight other than the courtyard. And then we're going to wrap it up. Let's, let's move quickly. We are going to now see the description of the, the tent or the fence around the, the, whole court, uh, the whole tabernacle, the outside fence, if you will, or curtain. You shall make the court of the tabernacle on the south side. There shall be hangings for the court of fine twisted linen, 100 cubits long for one side. And these, uh, this description of the courts moves on uh, to some detail that I'm not sure we're all particularly concerned about. Let me sum it up for you in this way. Verses 9 through 15 reveal the fence, in quotes, that mark the tabernacle's outer boundary. If you're taking notes, it measured approximately 75 feet by 150 feet. I'm summing up verses 9 through 15. The total area was about 10,000 square feet. So if you're trying to get a kind of a, uh, a big picture on the size, that's about what the whole thing is. 10,000 square feet. The tent of meeting took up less than 1,000 of those 10,000 square feet. There was a good amount of open area in the courtyard fence. It consisted of 60 pillars that were described in verses 9 through 15, set in 60 bases and joined by white linen curtains. The fence was nearly 8 feet tall that surrounded the tabernacle, which permitted the Israelites to see the top of the tabernacle and the smoke rising from the altar but not necessarily what was happening on the inside. So if you were standing on the outside, let's go back to one of those just, or you can see it right here. Standing on the outside, you couldn't really see over the curtain, it was eight feet tall, what was happening on the inside. Once you came on in the inside, you kind of saw the full picture of what was happening in terms of uh, that context. And then verses 16 through 19 describe the one entrance. Let's read those verses quickly. For the gate of the court, this is the outer gate now, the one place you come in shall be a screen of 20 cubits of blue and purple and scarlet material, fine twisted linen, the work of a weaver with their four pillars and their four sockets. So the curtain forming the covering for the entrance into the courtyard is what we have here. 
It was colored uh, with the, the same colors as the two inner curtains, as we've already studied. All the pillars around the court shall be finished with, furnished with silver bands, with their hooks of silver and their sockets of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, uh, with uh, the width 50 throughout, the height five cubits of fine twisted linen, their sockets of bronze. Final verse. All the utensils of the tabernacle used in all its service and all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. So you have the entry point. You have the curtains described. You have the total building placed before us and the outer court described. When the psalmist began to pick up this idea of the courts, they said these words, Psalm 64, 65, 4 and 5. How blessed is the one whom you choose to bring near to you, to dwell in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. By awesome deeds, you answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation. You, are, you who are the trust of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest sea. In Psalm 84, turn over there for a second. Psalm 84 you will hear some familiar words about the courts of the Lord as you turn there. This is Psalm 100, verses 4 and 5. Let's all turn to Psalm 84. It reads this on the outside when you come into the sanctuary. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. His faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 84 is a beautiful psalm. It is sung about the courts of the Lord. Keep in mind the tabernacle. Here's what it says. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird also has found a house, the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you, Selah. How blessed is the man whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways to Zion. Passing through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God in Zion. The house speaks of the tabernacle or temple. O Lord God of house, hear my... God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than what? A thousand elsewhere, a thousand outside. I'd rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Amen. When people came into the tabernacle and later temple area, this is how they saw it. Better is one day in your courts. Better to be into the, in the courts of the Lord. I've come to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. We, we were studying the Ethiopian eunuch in our men's Bible study on Thursday mornings, and the Ethiopian eunuch traveled hundreds of miles to go to the courts of the Lord. And the Gentiles had only the outer court. So the people of Israel could come into the inner court. The Gentiles only had an outer court on the outside of the temple area. It was called the court of the Gentiles. And actually, there were warning signs. If you go beyond this 
place, pass through it as a non-Jew, you will be killed. So if you were an outsider, you were on the outside looking in, as it were. You couldn't even go into these inner places unless you converted to Judaism, which was a process including circumcision. And so you'd have to be pretty serious about your faith, but we won't go there tonight. And so there was this court of the Gentiles, and this was the place in Isaiah 56 where it says that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And Jesus, quoting Isaiah 56, I think it's verse 7, said, but you have made it a den of robbers. These people who are coming to seek me, don't you rip them off in the purchase of sacrificial animals. Don't you charge them exorbitant rates when they're trying to change their money to do the right thing to come and worship me. Don't you do that. This will be a house of prayer for all the nations. But you can see as you step back from the tabernacle and you study some of the aspects of it and you run into this place called the bronze altar, a place of sacrifice, that there's a problem. How do I get to God? Do you think that most of the world who may ask a question like that will immediately think of sacrifice? You know, this is not necessarily the most pleasant thought. A place of blood, a place where animals die, are cut, are killed. And this, this was the process that the Jews went through time and time again. There's a quote, um, just to give you an idea of what it might look like in the life of an average Israelite. In a typical case, the process begins with a worshiper who brings an animal without defect to the priest. The worshiper has raised the animal himself or paid for the animal with his own earnings. So the animal represents a true sacrifice, in quotes. In the modern sense of the word, it costs something to the worshiper, and a portion of the worshiper's own life is identified with the animal. The worshiper lays his hand on the head of the animal, signifying identification with it. He then kills the animal at the entrance into the courtyard, signifying that the animal dies as a substitute for the worshiper. From that point onward, the priest takes over in performing the sacrificial actions at this altar. The intervention of the priest indicates this, that a specially holy person or set-apart person must perform the action necessary to present the worshiper before God, even after the death of the animal. The priest takes some of the blood, sprinkles it on the sides of the bronze altar or, or on the horns of the altar, depending on the particular type of sacrifice. All of these actions constitute the permanent marking of the altar as testimony to the fact that the animal has died, and that in the place of the worshiper. So can you imagine if you could try to put yourself there for a moment? You've purchased an animal, perhaps raised it in your own family, and now you've sinned against God, and so now you've got to go, and you've got to lay hands on the head of this animal and basically say, I'm sorry that I've sinned against you, God. And you might even whisper, I'm sorry to the animal. And then you take the animal's life and it dies in your stead. And this happens day and night, day after day for hundreds and thousands of years, animal after animal 
priest after priest, sacrifice after sacrifice. And the book of Hebrews says, and these things could never take away our sins. They might have provided a, a covering. Some people believe they're symbolic. And just to give you one more example of this, Exodus and the next book is Leviticus. Go to chapter 6 and let me just give you an example of a passage to show you how this works. Leviticus 6, 1. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Here's what the Bible says. Just take a look. This will give you an example of a passage where uh, a person does this. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, When a person sins, Leviticus 6, 2, and acts unfaithfully against the Lord, deceives his companion in regard to a deposit or security entrusted to him or through robbery or if he has extorted from his companion, 6.3, or has found what was lost and lied about it or sworn falsely so that he sins in regard to any one of the things a man may do. Pretty sweeping. Then it shall be when he sins and becomes guilty that he shall restore what he took by robbery or what he got by extortion or the deposit which was entrusted to him or the lost thing which he found or anything about which he swore falsely, he shall make restitution for it in full and add to it one-fifth more. He shall give it to the one to whom it belongs on the day he presents his guilt offering. This is one of at least five different kinds of offerings. Then he shall bring to the priest his guilt offering to the Lord, a ram without defect from the flock, according to your valuation for a guilt offering. The priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he will be forgiven for any one of the things which he may have done to incur guilt. And then the Lord goes on and speaks to Moses and says, Command Aaron and his sons and say, This is the law for the burnt offering. The burnt offering itself shall remain on the hearth, on the altar, all night until the morning. And the fire on the altar is to be kept burning on it. The priest is to put on his linen robe he shall put on undergarments next to his flesh. He shall take up the ashes to which the fire reduces the burnt offering on the altar, place them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments and put on other garments, carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out, but the priest shall burn wood on it every morning. He shall lay out the burnt offering on it, offer up in smoke the fat portions of the peace offering on it. Fire shall be kept burning continually on the altar. It is not to go out. Now, this is just one example. If you ever wondered, what does this look like in the Bible? Someone blows it. They sin against a neighbor. They find something and they lie about it. They, they do something wrong. They sin, right? And what do they have to do? <laughs> they make restitution first. And let's not pass over that. In this economy, the first thing that you did, and some of you, this happened to you when you were small and you did something wrong. It could happen with a bar of soap. You said a naughty word to your parents and they took the bar of Irish Spring filled with all kinds of chemicals to add to the judgment for your sin. And they, they did a little scrubbing on, on your little tongue. Something that you won't ever forget. Perhaps we need to re-implement some of those lessons. Or they would say something like this. Oh, you stole something? Well, we're going back to the store, and you're going to confess to the store owner what you did, and then you're going to give it back, and then if they want you to do anything around the store, you're going to work there. 
in perpetuity. <laughs> I'm going to give you up to the store owner as a slave for the rest of your life. Oh, no. Just kidding. Maybe a week, right? Well, this is how it worked. But yet the guilt remained because even though you made restitution to the person, you'd still first and foremost sinned against God. My sin is always first against God. Now, it doesn't mean I haven't sinned against other people, but there's a vertical concern as, as well as a horizontal amends that I need to make. And this is the nature of sin. And so when people came into this place, they could come in, you know, with a sobriety about their sins. Surely, back to Exodus and we'll finish. But they could also come in with hope. Hope of what? Of forgiveness. I mean, if you got to the point where you had admitted something, maybe you got caught, maybe not, maybe you just felt guilty, and you made restitution, and then you went in with that animal sacrifice, it was a way to be made right with God again. But something had to die in your place. And then you would be restored into, you could say, communion or right standing with God. Now, I know that sacrifice is not what most moderns want to hear, but the tabernacle was to, designed in this way to show first things first. I'm reading from my notes that I wrote a little while ago. Standing between the worshiper and the presence of God was the largest piece of furniture, this bronze altar. It was a place of blood and death, and it wasn't pretty. The bronze altar reveals God's holiness and justice. There is no approaching him without a sacrifice. No ladders to climb, no good works to perform to approach God. Death is the consequence of sin. There are no other entrances, no negotiations, no alternatives, no loopholes. Upon entering the tabernacle, one is immediately confronted with the seriousness of their sin. As we uh, put up that last picture one more time, as animals are you know, going up in fragrant aroma to God, but yet they have died. There are no back doors. There is no option to choose door A, B, or C. Can I just choose and see what's behind it? No. There is a required price. And the people of Israel have already experienced this in the lamb that was slain on Passover because they applied the blood of the lamb to their door so that when God passed over, he would not kill the firstborn of each household. Amen? They already knew something about this. They had the sense of this. And now the whole structure is God saying, I want a tabernacle with you, but the problem is your sin. And so over and over again, we've read through the Hebrews passages, time and again, sacrifice, priest after priest, animal after animal, and still the problem of mankind remains. In some of the passages that you read about these sacrifices, they're described as a fragrant aroma, a soothing aroma that goes up to God. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says these words, Be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. It is true that this was an ugly place, but it's also true that there was a beauty to it. It was a sweet-smelling aroma, a good barbecue, if you will, that went up to the Lord. 1 John 3.16 says it this way. This is how we know what love is. 
Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for one another. See, uh, the altar of burnt offering for us is Jesus. And now the way is open. We don't have to come with an animal. We don't have to die for our sins, though we deserve it. One died for us as the lamb without spot and without blemish, and his name is Jesus. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is my lamb and your lamb. He took the fire of God's wrath. He was tied taut, just like the animal would be tied. You can think of Psalm 118, where you tie the festal sacrifice to the horns of the altar. He was taut as he was whipped. He was mistreated. He was cut, if you will, just like the sacrifice. He bled. Uh, the book of Isaiah describes him on the cross as one who you can not even tell if he's human. So brutally beaten is he that even his organs have been exposed by that terrible cat of nine tails. And when he dies on the cross and says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why? The fire of God's wrath comes upon the lamb who by his one sacrifice has forever paid for our sins. Do you know, you know, I was trying to describe to you last Wednesday how good we have it in the new covenant. Do you know that all we have to do is whisper a prayer and we have entered into the Holy of Holies. In fact, God has decided to make us his tabernacle by his Holy Spirit. That's really good news. You don't need to bring a sacrifice. It has been paid in full. The way Jesus said it from the cross is, it is finished. Amen? Amen. You are free to enter in boldly into the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus. Amen? It's described as a new and living way because it is the new covenant and it is such good news. The animal had to make the atonement in this tabernacle. The Lamb of God, our great high priest, made the atonement once and for all. Now you are free. Free from guilt. Free to have a clean conscience. It doesn't mean you can live however you want now. Amen? I mean, now that you're a forgiven person, you have a life that you owe to God. Not to earn your salvation, but in gratitude. Amen? For what he's done for you. This is what the bronze altar means. It points us to the Lamb of God, our great mediator. Father, thank you for some time to just consider the text before us. Thank you for the divine blueprint, the tabernacle, or the way we've titled this Christ in the Tabernacle. Father, we're so grateful for those who are here tonight, those who may be watching or watch this later. I pray that you would drive home the power of the sacrifice of Jesus, the depth of it, what he went through, what you went through, Lord, to make the way open so that that veil could be torn, so that there would be no more of these sacrifices. These were reminders of the depth of our sin, but you have taken it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Just take a moment. Let the word of God sink into your soul. 
If you're not a Christian, this would be a great time to ask Jesus to save you. Tell him you believe that he died on the cross. He rose from the dead. Repent of your sin and trust in him. If you're a believer, this is a good time to just rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the God of your salvation. His great love for you. The depths he was willing to go to to make sure you would be saved and right in his sight. And for all of us, Lord, we're so grateful that you are patient, good, loving. Thank you for the new covenant in Christ. We pray in his name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Would you stand for the last song?